Section 1 of That Affair at Elizabeth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathy Barrett. That Affair at Elizabeth by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter 1. An Urgent Summons. That seems to be all right, Lester, said Mr. Royce, and handed the papers back to me. I'll be mighty glad when we get that off our hands. So, I knew, with the whole force of the office, for the case had been an unusually irritating one, tangling itself up in the most unexpected ways, until, with petitions and counter-petitions, and answers and demurs and what not, we were all heartily tired of it. I slipped the papers into an envelope, and shot them into a pigeonhole with a sigh of relief. I think that'll end it, I said. I don't see how there can be any further delay. No, agreed our junior, neither do I. Are the papers in the Griffin case ready? Not yet. I doubt if they will be ready before this afternoon. Well, they can wait, he said, and glanced at his watch. I want to catch the ten-ten for Elizabeth. For Elizabeth? Yes, I know it's a mighty awkward time for me to leave, but it's an engagement I've got to keep. You've heard me speak of Burr Curtis. Yes, I said. I seem to remember the name. He's been one of my best friends for the past ten years. I met him first at Yale, and a liking sprang up between us which grew stronger as time went on. I played a sort of second fiddle to him then, for he was president of the class in his senior year, and was voted the most popular man in it. He came to New York as soon as he was graduated, and got a place on the construction staff of the Pennsylvania Road. He was assigned to one of the western divisions, and I didn't see anything of him for two or three years, but finally he was recalled, and we used to hobnob at the university club. Since my marriage he comes around to smoke a pipe with me occasionally and talk over old times. He's a social fellow, likes companionship, and my wife says is just the man to make a woman happy. So when he wrote me a note two months ago, announcing his engagement, we were naturally curious concerning the woman in the case, for his ideals were high. Too high, I always told him. Mr. Royce paused and sat for a moment, smiling out the window at the grey wall of the building opposite. I remember it was one evening early last winter, he went on at last that Curtis happened in, and, as we sat smoking together, our talk somehow turned to women. It was then I learned what an idealist he was. The woman to win his heart must be accomplished, of course, witty, knowing the world, and yet unsoiled by it, capable of original thought, of being her husband's intellectual companion. So much for the mental side. Physically, well, physically, he wanted a Venus de Milo or Helen of Troy, nothing less. I laughed at him. I pointed out that beautiful women are seldom intellectual. But he was obdurate. He protested that he would capitulate on no other terms. I retorted that in that case he would probably remain a bachelor. But, I remarked, it seems to me that this friend of yours is a trifle egotistical. What has he to offer in exchange for such perfection? Well, said Mr. Royce slowly, it would be a good bargain on both sides. Given such a woman, I could fancy her longing for such a man as Curtis, just as he would long for her. I've told you something of his mental caliber. Physically, he's the handsomest man I ever saw and it seems to me he gets handsomer every year. In our college days he was rather too stout, too girlish-looking, but hard work and contact with the world have rubbed all that away. George, he added, the children of such a pair would be fit for Olympus. And did he find her? I asked, curious for the rest of the story. After I got his note, said my companion, I hunted him up at his apartments as soon as I could. He let me in himself, got out his cigars, and sat down opposite me, fairly beaming, I looked him over. I had never before seen a man who seemed so supremely happy. So, I asked at last, you found her. Yes, he said, 
"'Yes?' "'The woman you were looking for?' "'The very woman.' "'That impossible ideal?' "'An ideal, yes, but not impossible, since she exists in the flesh, and I have found her.' "'Well, you're a lucky dog,' I said. "'Tell me about her.' So he told me. Quite a Laura Jean Libby story. She has everything, it seemed, that could be desired in a woman. "'And beautiful?' I asked him. For reply he brought out a photograph from his desk. I tell you, Lester, it fairly took my breath away. I felt as though I were looking at a masterpiece, say Andrea del Sarto's Madonna, and I would as soon have thought of marrying the one as the other. It was like snatching a star down out of heaven. Curtis was leaning back in his chair watching me, and he smiled as I looked up. Well, he asked. I went over and shook hands with him. I couldn't find words to tell him what I felt. But where has she been? I demanded. How does it happen she was left for you? She's been abroad for five or six years, he explained. That's no answer, I said. Why isn't she a queen, then, or a duchess, at least? She's had chances enough, I dare say, and he smiled at my enthusiasm. I agree with you that she's worthy to wear a crown. But then, you see, she has ideals, too. Perhaps none of the kings she met measured up to them. And you did. Well, she's good enough to think so. I had been idling over the photograph and my eyes happened to fall upon some lines written across the back. I didn't know them then, but I've looked them up since. My days were sunless, and my nights were moonless. Parched the pleasant April herbage, and the lark's heart's outbreak tuneless, if you loved me not. I tell you, Lester, and there was a little break in our junior's voice, I was overwhelmed. You know, love, passion, the real thing the poets write about, has grown mighty rare in this world. We're too commercial for it, I suppose too much given to calculating chances. But here I was, face to face with it. Well, I was unequal to the situation. I didn't know what to say, but he helped me. The date hasn't been set yet, he said, but it will be some time in June. And the reason I'm telling you all this is that I'm going to ask a favor of you. It's to be a church wedding, and I want you to be best man. I hope you won't refuse. I was glad of the chance to be of service and told him so, concluded Mr. Royce, glancing again at his watch and rising hastily. The wedding's to be at noon today. You see, I'm cutting it rather fine. I'd intended to go down yesterday afternoon, but that Barnaby petition upset my plans. I'll be back tonight or in the morning at the latest. In the meantime, if anything imperative turns up, a telegram to the Sheridan house at Elizabeth will catch me. Very well, I replied, and made a note of the address. But don't worry about the work here. I'll get along all right. Of course you will, he agreed, and an instant later the door closed behind him. But more than once in the course of the morning I was inclined to think that I had spoken too confidently. Mr. Graham, our senior partner, had broken down about a month before, under a stress of work which had been unusual even for our office, and had been ordered away for a long vacation. One or two members of the office force had resigned to accept other positions, and the task of filling their places was one which required thought and care. So for the time being we were extremely short-handed. That morning, perversely enough, it seemed to me that the work piled up even more rapidly than usual, and it was not until the mellow chimes of Trinity, marking the noon hour, floated through the open window, that I succeeded in clearing away the most pressing portion of the morning's business, and leaned back in my chair with a sigh of satisfaction. That Marjorie Banks case was now ours. Mr. Royce would approve. No doubt at this very moment he was before the altar of the Elizabeth Church, listening to the low responses. I had only to close my eyes to picture the scene— the dim, flower-decked interior, the handsomely gowned, sympathetically expectant audience, the bride, supremely beautiful in her veil and orange blossoms, her eyes downcast, the warm color coming and going in her cheeks. Telegram, sir. 
said a voice, and I swung around to find the office-boy at my elbow. "'For you, sir,' he added. I took the yellow envelope and tore it open absently, my mind still on the vision my fancy had conjured up. Then, as my eyes caught the words of the message, I sat bolt upright with a start. It read, "'Come to Elizabeth by first train. Don't fail us. Royce.'" End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 A Bride's Vagary Two minutes later I was speeding downward in the elevator, having paused only long enough to give a word of instruction to the head clerk. A glance at my watch showed me that if I would catch the 12.38 I had no time to lose, but luckily a cab was passing at the moment, and I jumped aboard the boat for Jersey City just as the gates were closing. Not until I was safely aboard the train did I give myself time to conjecture what this imperative summons meant, but during the half-hour run to the little New Jersey City I had ample time to try to puzzle it out. One thing was quite certain. It was no ordinary emergency which had moved Mr. Royce to summon me from the office at a time when I was so badly needed there. I got out the telegram again, and read it word by word. It affected me as a wild cry for help would have done, at midnight in some lonely place, and it was just that, a wild cry for help. But why had he needed aid, when he himself was so clear-sighted, so ready-witted, so fertile of resource? What was this astounding occurrence which confronted him, this crisis so urgent and overwhelming that it had shaken and startled him out of his self-control? The message itself was proof of his deep excitement. Apparently he had wired for me instinctively, finding himself suddenly in the toils of some dilemma which left him dazed and nerveless. Ever since the time when I had succeeded, more by luck than anything else, in discovering the whereabouts of Frances Holliday and solving the mystery of her father's death, our junior partner had conceived a tremendously exalted opinion of my abilities as an untangler of abstruse problems, and never lost an opportunity of referring to me such as came in his way. Every firm of practicing lawyers knows how frequently a case hinges upon some puzzling point of evidence, how witnesses have a way of disappearing, and Graham and Royce had their full share of such perplexing tangles. It had come to be one of the unwritten rules of the office that such points should be referred to me, and while I was by no means uniformly successful in solving them, I always took a lively pleasure in the work. It was no doubt that habit which had caused our junior to turn to me in this emergency. I could guess how terrifying it must have been to overwhelm so completely a man so well-balanced and self-controlled. I could almost see the trembling hand with which he had penned the message. So it was with a certain quickening of the pulse that I stepped from the train at the triangular Elizabeth station, and an instant later Mr. Royce had me by the hand. "'I've a carriage over here, Lester,' he said, drawing me toward it, and I noticed that he was fairly quivering with excitement. "'I thought you could make this train,' he added, as we took our seats and the driver whipped up smartly. "'I knew you wouldn't lose any time, and I can't tell you how glad I am to have you here. Curtis is all broken up, doesn't know which way to turn. Neither do I. I had just sense enough to send you that wire.' "'I thought it was a mystery of some sort,' I said, beginning to tingle in sympathy with him. "'What has happened?' "'The bride-to-be has disappeared,' answered Mr. Royce simply. "'Vanished. Skipped out.' For a moment I scarcely understood. It seemed preposterous to suppose that I had heard aright. "'Disappeared,' I echoed helplessly. "'Skipped out?' "'Yes, yeah, skipped out,' and Mr. Royce crushed his unlighted cigar savagely in his fingers, and hurled it through the carriage window. I haven't the slightest doubt that she deliberately ran away. The sight of his emotion calmed me a little. At the last moment? I questioned. Practically at the last moment, less than an hour before the time set for the ceremony. She was getting ready for it. Was in her wedding dress, in fact. I tell you, Lester. Wait, I said, putting out a restraining hand. 
Begin at the beginning. What's her name? Marcia Lawrence. And she's the ideal Curtis imagined he'd found. Yes, said Mr. Royce slowly, and so far as I can judge from what I've seen and heard, she really was as nearly perfect as any woman can be. Yet she skipped out. That's why I'm so upset she was the last woman in the world to do such a thing. Tell me about her, I said. I don't know very much, but I do know that she wasn't a mere empty-headed chit. She was an accomplished and cultured woman. I've already told you how her beauty affected me. I paused a moment to consider it. I was fairly nonplussed. It seemed incredible that such a woman should, under any conceivable circumstances, deliberately desert her lover at the altar. And in her wedding gown, I murmured half to myself. Yes, in her wedding gown, repeated our junior, passing his hand feverishly across his eyes. It's unbelievable. It's... I can't find any word to describe it. I can scarcely believe I'm awake. Perhaps she found she didn't love him, I suggested. At the last moment? Stranger things have happened. I don't believe it. A woman like Marcia Lawrence knows her own heart before she goes that far. Suppose we say sudden insanity. Well-balanced women don't go mad merely because they're going to get married. Then she didn't run away, I said. Mr. Royce looked at me quickly. You mean... But the carriage stopped with a jolt, and the driver jerked open the door. End of chapter 2 End of section 1